All right, hello everyone. This is episode three of the Pop Health Show. My name is Anthony Diaz. I am the CEO and founder of Health Hero, a digital population health company. But very specifically, this show is for anyone that has a passion for making more than one person healthy in this world. We have a breadth of different topics that we always talk about. Sometimes it could be personal health. Sometimes it could be how do we support health in a group setting from a provider or payer standpoint. Um, we talk about a variety of different topics, but I think most importantly, I am super excited to have Dr. Whitehouse on the show. And um, Dr. Whitehouse, I, I'm a, you know, obviously I'm a big fan uh, of yours and your everything that you've worked on, uh, payers, providers, your educational background, some of the profound studies that you've done over your career. But before I <laughs> do a more intro, it's, I think it's best for you to introduce yourself, Dr. Whitehouse, and uh, you know, tell us your story. You know, I, I think you're a hero in this space, and I'd love to hear. We, everyone would love to hear a little bit about your origin and how you how you got started. Well, thank you, Andy, and uh, let's let's clear about the hero part of it. Um, <laughs> but um, I grew up in England, as my accent will betray me, and um, kind of had no idea what I was going to do when I grew up. So, at the age of eleven in England, you're asked. Do you want to do extra math, Greek or German? And I chose Greek. And so I found myself being a classicist by training. And then as I got older, I thought, actually, I really would love to do medicine. My grandfather had had, had been a physician. And I set off to Cambridge with that in mind and had to complete my training. And I was also fascinated by the theology. And... As I became interested in theology, I was kind of interested in the the deep existential questions in terms of what purpose and, and meaning and the role of suffering in life and so on. And that drove me to actually be interested in going into a career in theology. And I went off to Oxford where I encountered my wife who was doing a senior year abroad program at that point. She was coming back to the States, and before I knew it, I was coming back to the States. And we were both going to Harvard Divinity School, where I continued my theology studies and taught school in um, South Boston, in the inner city. And I had great mentors, and I began to think in terms of theology much more about the practical help that people needed. And I saw so many issues. And I felt a compelling need to actually go back into medicine and to really hone my skills and see whether I could do something much more tangible and direct in impacting life. And so I went, I went back into medical training, uh, went, went to Dartmouth to finish it, um, and came to Mass General, and then went off to serve in the National Health Service Corps in one of the underserved areas of northern Vermont, where I saw a lot of need, an unfulfilled need. And while I practiced in a variety of settings, in a general hospital in Connecticut and then in a private hospital in Massachusetts, I began to see, was, was there a way that one could touch even more lives? And one of the first ways was to actually join up in managed care and see, could you improve health on a much larger um, spectrum. And from that, 
became an understanding as technology improved that maybe there was a way to use the innovations that were becoming available that you could touch each even more lives. But behind it all was not technology in the kind of remote robotic way, but in the very palpable way of creating the ability to speak, contact, and connect with people and help them with some of the most important struggles and meaningful decisions in their lives. And mm. that's where I am now. No, that's, that's powerful, Dr. Whitehouse. And, um, you know, definitely uh, just from, you know, knowing you for, for a bit now for, or for a while now, um, you know, your breadth of not just education and passion for, you know, I think you nailed it perfectly is, you know, a, a deep desire to prevent suffering on a mass scale, if I, I, if I must codify what you just mentioned. Um, you know, it's just, it's just powerful to have, you know, someone uh, with your background focused in this area. Um, you have I and spoke, uh, one thing I never forget is I remember a conversation a while back, you were, were talking about a couple of stories um, or scenarios that you had accountability or responsibility for in, um, I think it was some impoverished areas, um, whether maybe there's uh, something you can um, mention to our, you know, that our listeners, I think would love to hear is, you know, tell us a story of, you know, how you've placed a, you know, a service, um, you know, in a rural area or a population group um, and something profound that you learned in the process that had a really great outcome for either the community or for a group. I, I think everyone would love to hear, uh, you know, something along those lines. So, so a, a, a couple of uh, lessons I've, I've learned along the way, and it's funny, as, as people tell me nowadays that they have great answers, um, I have a um, stock patient who I put, say, tell me how your solution would make life better for, and my stock is a schizophrenic HIV patient who is homeless. Mm -hmm. And I just became aware of so many things we do that we do from the, the benefit of academia or from the academy or from uh, perceptions that people have many more resources. And I worked in areas both in terms of South Boston and Vermont and then in many other places since, where the situation was people did not have the resources. And I remember one of the first technology solutions, and it was around exactly that type of case. And we came up with the idea of saying, um, people were saying, well, the disease managers can't contact them. The care managers can never get in touch with them. Well, it's because they're homeless. So it was like, why don't we give everybody a cell phone? Because even if you're homeless and you live under the bridge at times, you want to meet up with your buddies and you'd like to be able to contact them so that you can connect with them and feel less alone. And we said, well, we'll give you a cell phone and we'll renew the minutes. And that way, a care manager or a case manager may be able to get in touch with you and find out how you're doing and connect. The other thing I learned then was that um, both for the patient and for the physician or the nurse or the pharmacist, 
it really matters whether you actually care about your patient mm -hmm. and that they know that. And there are multiple studies that will basically say that patients who believe that their caregiver cares about them do better. And in this situation, we began to realize that many of the patients I wanted to help were actually the most despised in the emergency room because they used the emergency room frequently, they came in, they didn't follow through, and so people found them irritating and frustrating. And it was like, these are complicated patients. And so they tended to get physicians who felt they were far on in their careers and should not be bothered by these situations. And it was like, what we need to find is physicians or caregivers who really have an avocation to work with certain types of patients because it matters to them. Because you can use technology and consultation to get wisdom and technical advice, but there is nothing that you can do to teach a very smart person to care if they don't genuinely care. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I've always been interested in how um, the emotional side of health plays into the success of the, the wisdom and the cognitive advice that we give people. I love it. Yeah, you know, it's super powerful, um, you know, the emotional empathetic side of, of health. And, um, you know, it's interesting how, you know, organizations, global organizations, local organizations, everyone's trying to strike this new balance between what I find, uh, the emotional side of wellness, the caring side of, uh, of health, of follow-up, but maintaining empathy. Um, but also we have great technological shifts, which are some even greater than technological shifts. They're, they're kind of societal shifts. Uh, Dr. Whitehouse, your experience and, you know, working with, um, you know, sensors and, and quantified self, uh, obviously you have a lot of different fringe health, uh, phenomenon that are starting to emerge. Um, do you have some, some theses on how these two words of, you know, high touch, high tech, or, you know, technology and empathy and the emotional side of caring for patients and, and for citizens. Maybe you can speak a little bit about, you know, how are you thinking about the convergence of the two? Um, love, love to hear a little bit more about that. So, so two, two possible thoughts on that. Um, one is I feel that we have a real need to um, – truly understand how we are going to become dependent on digital medicine. Um, I remember when it was pointed out to me that one of the things that is, uh, or some of the things that are killing us nowadays are the new diseases such as the global epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes and um, high blood pressure, multiple of which are silent in our lives. These are issues, therefore, that the old type of medicine, the old type of medicine was symptom-driven medicine. You went to see your doctor because you had a headache, you had pain, you had a rash, you had a temperature. 
But the things that are killing us are silent for so long. An overweight eight-year-old does not have hip pain yet from the gradual degradation of their joints, but it will come. And so we are, and in the old days, our own bodies evolved. We have multiple internal sensors developed over our evolution so that when we stand up or sit down, our blood pressure changes. They're incredibly accurate and useful. And when they dysfunction, we know about it. But we will never be able to develop the type of warning sensors that use symptoms fast enough to protect us as a species. So we are going to become much more reliant on a new world of sensors, whether they be on the skin or digestibles or nanoparticles, um, in order to save us from the things that our own evolution and um, the, the new advantages of our society have brought to us. But one of the areas that matters most to me has been a real, what I would call, attempt recently to democratize the brain. Mm -hmm. We began to get some understanding that what we do with our bodies impacts our eventual life, quality of life and lifespan. And so we understood that diet and exercise were important, but we were always a little anxious that um, could we really do anything about our brains or about our emotions? And it was all highly mysterious. And whether we go through the days of Freud lying on the couch or whatever, psychiatry was a specialty and don't muck with people's brains. And it's something we don't want to talk about. And it's something people were very scared of. And yet now, in an age where resilience, where terror is the name of the game, where change is everywhere, our emotional lives and our emotional health are critical. And when I first went to medical school, I still belong to that era where they said the brain you were born with was the brain you died with. Um, peripheral nerves can regrow, but central nervous system cells do not. Now we know that you, neurogenesis and the development of new nerves and the migration of those new neurons to create synapses. So neurogenesis and synaptogenesis are part of our life. And what we have to do now is be as circumspect in training, educating, nurturing, and the health of our brains because our emotional health is so incredibly vital to our ability to maximize um, the fullness of life of which we're capable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, this is amazing. Yeah, the, uh, the neuro side of health, I, you know, I, I think we're on the same page here that, you know, it drives, drives everything. And obviously, I know you have significant expertise sitting on um, organizations and, you know, that have nothing to do with, you know, about brain science. And so I appreciate those, those thoughts. Um, you know, Dr. Whitehouse, I guess, um, you know, this is something that I like to ask a lot of our guests, um, and maybe it's related to neurogenesis, but you know, what, what is something that you believe is true, even though you can't prove it? 
I'd love to hear a little of your thoughts on kind of what, what are your most fringe thoughts in, in either neuroscience or health in general, um, or maybe said a different way, um, you know, what is something you believe that other people feel is insane, you know? That, well, I don't, yeah, so probably the lesson that I have learned most watching others mm-hmm. is that we learn too late what is really important about life. Mm-hmm. That we chase the shiny objects of whether it be the, the right schooling, whether it be money, the vaunted career, whatever it is. But out of two situations, one, a lot of the work I did around 9-11, mm-hmm. two out of watching, I think even more than the spending time with patients as they died, spending time with child patients who died and watching them take care of their parents when their parents thought they were taking care of them, that the, that the importance of health is, is not an end in and of itself, but health is a facilitator in life. And the question you should always ask yourself is, what do you want your health for? If, if you could be afforded good health, if you don't have to struggle against infirmity or chronic disease or disability of any type, but you have all the health in the world, what would you do with it? And the trouble is when people have it, they take it for granted. And the people who don't have it frequently can achieve amazing things. But within all that, it's like, Health is not an end. If you went through life and you made no relationships, lived alone, (laughs) contributed nothing, spoke to no one, but were eminently healthy, God bless you. (laughs) I, I don't think that's an end in and of itself. So people say, oh, but the person was healthy. It was like, great. They were healthy. And so, so what? And what then? They were healthy, and what did they do with it? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes in the caring professions, we can get so into the idea of being healthy as an end in and of itself. I ran 100 miles. That's an incredible achievement. Why do we climb Everest? Because it's there. They're all wonderful. And sometimes if they're of the kind of caliber of climbing Everest or, you know, swimming, for and even for – for the average person, I ran three miles. That, those are great achievements. And then it's like, so you learned that your body was capable of doing something. And how are you going to use that? What are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, when the World Health Association said that health is truly about mind, body, and, and spirit, I really do believe it's. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's about all those three. This is great, Dr. Whitehouse. So just to kind of join kind of two, I think, port, important concepts we spoke about in the past uh, 20 or so minutes here. Um, 
we talked about the mind, right? So the neuro side of health, um, and then, you know, you're kind of capping it off with this concept of purpose-driven health and the health is, should be deliberate for a purpose or it matters. Um, you know, your purpose matters. Um, from your experience, Dr. Whitehouse, on the payer and on the provider side, and obviously on, on the health tech side from your experiences, um, how do you think the markets and I guess how payers and providers are looking at, you know, mind, body, spirit, and, and just purpose-driven health, how do you think are some some interesting ways that on the payer and provider side, these these pieces can get more embedded into scalable processes? So, so I, so I think for, for what has for a long time been an employer driven paid health system, mm -hmm. employers, I think, began to see more and more that they are successful because of their employees. And I would say, that the employers who realize that, who have a sense that the people who work for them are not just widgets, but their overall health, their overall alignment are what drives success, um, realize that any human capital strategy has to invest in the overall health of its employees. And when you do that, you then come to realize m many things. One, for instance, that the health of your employees is affected by the health of their family members. An interesting statistic was that we found that the medical costs of the family members of somebody who was an alcoholic were two and a half times those of the average person. So not just the alcoholic themselves, who obviously suffers the diseases that go with that and has medical and emotional needs, but the family members are affected. For an employer, the the hours away from work spent for a, an employee who has an Alzheimer's relative who suffers from dementia, it is time lost in, in absence. Mm -hmm. And for employers who understand productivity, they understand the significance of things like sleeplessness and stress. And so employers do better by being invested in the health of their employees. So I think I've seen us come from a time when employers just saw medical insurance as a cost center. Okay, we have salaries and then we have health insurance and it's just a cost center. And how can we keep it as low as possible? Right. And it was, if we invest in any wellness, it better have an ROI in reducing medical costs. And if it doesn't do that, I'm not paying for any wellness programs. To a much richer sense of, I want a wellness program because I really understand that if I have a human capital investment, 
if I truly understand that my profitability and success as a company comes from the health, wellness, and alignment of my employees, I want them to be able to come emotionally focused, physically ready to work. Mm -hmm. And I want to do everything I can to make that possible. Wow. Yeah, this it's it's great to hear that perspective on, you know, just as it, yeah, it does seem like organizations that do focus on, you know, the purpose of their employees and really designing a clear path of what's the right health for their employees to achieve the mission of the company, but sounds like also embedding a pure authentic approach uh, in supporting the health of their employees and their families and being cognizant of uh, family situations that may be going on, like the Alzheimer's, uh, you know, analogy that you had. Um, it feels like, and obviously there's a lot of data here. We're not, we're not going to, you know, tout statistics or anything like that, but it feels like those organizations that can do that, focus on that authentically will eventually have the byproduct of, of good ROI in those other areas. But you, you know, it's, it's probably the byproduct of a, of a patient authentic process to design the health in that way, all focused on organizational purpose, but purpose on the individual. And, uh, I think that's, if I'm codifying it right, that's a, that's, I think that's a really good, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, parallel. Um, Dr. Whitehouse, this is great. Again, we want to, you know, keep these episodes of the, of the show, you know, quick, punchy to the point. I think we're walking away and our viewers or our, our listeners are, are walking away with some, some good bullets and some good nuggets here on the neuro side, the mind, the mind, um, you know, the mind aspect of health, um, the scalable, empathetic, purpose-driven aspect of health, and uh, your story at the beginning on, you know, the uh, impoverished area that you've, you've helped. Um, I'm sure we can go on. We'd love to have you on another episode in the future and talk about a few more um, you know, either case studies or not, not just case studies, but examples of, of how you've helped and put processes together. Um, I think we're downplaying your impact on, on what you've done, not just here in the U S but obviously globally as well. So, um, so we'd love to hear that, uh, you know, a little bit more, but, uh, Dr. Whitehouse, this was great. It was great to have you on the show. Um, and, and thank you so much it, for our listeners out there. Is there any way you would like to be interacted with or, um, contact information or content out there that you'd like the, our listeners to subscribe to, to hear more about your stories and, and your, your, your work. So they can get in contact with me either through you, or they could get in contact with me through my email address, which is David dot white house at U S T hyphen global dot com ust hyphen global.com and i'd be happy great. to respond great well well dr whitehouse thank you so much this was great to connect with you especially on a holiday week um but uh we'll go ahead and uh we'll end the show and again thanks thanks so much and thanks for sharing your story and origin and passion and health uh, with us and anthony thank you for the opportunity thank you